Hi, I'm Cloda, and this is the China Chats podcast. If it's your first time listening, welcome. And if you've listened before, thank you and welcome back. Today, I am delighted to be chatting to Sarah Yaksola. In our conversation, we talk about the reality of running your own business in China. We talk about where to start when learning Mandarin and what it's actually like to teach Mandarin to non-native speakers. We discuss being in an intercultural marriage, having in-laws that are from a different heritage than you, and how to navigate through that. Let me give you a bit of background on today's guest. Sarah is originally from Finland, and if you've ever Googled something about living in China or cross-cultural relationships, then you have probably come across her blog. She has been living in China since 2010. She did her bachelor and master's degrees in China and now runs her own language center, Expat Chinese teaching Chinese to non-native speakers. Sarah's blog details everything from renovating an old Chinese house to being pregnant and family life in China, and even getting a Chinese green card. Sarah recently started her PhD and her research is about studying the motivation of adult second language learners of Mandarin Chinese. Basically, what factors affect motivation and how it changes during the course of one semester? Sarah is so knowledgeable in so many different areas and I can't wait to share it all with you. So, without further ado, let's chat. Welcome back to this week's podcast. I'm your host, Cloda, and today I have on with me a very interesting person. She is based in Guangzhou in China. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah Yaksola. Welcome, Sarah. It's so lovely to have you. Thank you so much. It's such a great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. I'm really excited to have you on. For anybody that doesn't know, Sarah has a fantastic blog. Um, she's had it for years. And I know that when I first got to China, I lived on her blog. It has some really great articles, so you should definitely check it out. I'll put a link in the show notes below. Uh, but it's so lovely to have you on. So, Sarah, can you give us a little bit of background on how did you end up living in China? Yes, yeah, certainly. So even since a kid, I've always been very fascinated about China and the Chinese culture, having that my parents actually lived in China in the 80s uh, before I was born. So I think I always had this kind of influence from home as well, from just something simple of having like some Chinese decorations or chopsticks or different Chinese things around the house. So I was always very curious about the culture. But it wasn't until I started university back in Finland when it actually became possible to consider visiting China. And I was lucky that during that time, so this was back in uh, 2009, I noticed on the university message board that there was an opportunity for a study exchange at the Chinese university. And it just happened to be the perfect time, so I decided to apply and uh, luckily, you know, I got chosen to, to come to Guangzhou. Wow, that's incredible. It almost seems like fate. The fact that your mom and dad had spent some time there. So you felt a bit more comfortable and then, you know, you had a connection and then you ended up in Guangzhou. So was Guangzhou the first and only place you've lived in China? Uh, yes, I've been traveling around, but I've always lived in Guangzhou. Wow, that's incredible. So you've been there for over 10 years. I think it's a lot more than 10 years, right? Oh, yeah, 13 years. Well, soon going to be 14, but around that time, yes. That is incredible. Have you seen a lot of change in Guangzhou? So for people who are listening and they're not 100% familiar with Chinese cities, um, Guangzhou is a very large city, uh, but it also has a lot of quirky, very traditional old parts of the city, very Cantonese authentic places. So 
how much of a change have you seen in Guangzhou? Yeah, in I think time? the the change have been massive. But when I when I moved to Guangzhou in 2010, so a lot of the new city center, what we call Zhuja New Town, uh, was still being built. Like some of it was already built, but it was still a little bit in in construction. That whole area, and since then there's been new living areas, business areas. It's just popping up, popping up all the time. Like a lot of the city center was still being built. Whereas now a lot of the development has gone into the suburbs, for example, and just by looking at the the metro map from 2010 and now 2023, it's 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 it's, uh, it's so impressive on how many different metro lines have been opened and how easily it is now to go around the city. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's insane. If you look at the map, you can literally see the spread of the city because there's so many new lines. Exactly. It's like a spider web because when I came in 2010, uh, the metro line to the airport wasn't quite yet finished. And now, you know, you get take the metro anywhere in Guangzhou. Yeah, that's insane. It even it even connects like there's the, the Foshan line. So it connects the nearest smaller city to Guangzhou that you literally don't need to take a bus or a car or a train. You just get the metro. That's incredible. So even though you had a connection to China with your parents having lived there, did you still experience a lot of culture shock when you first moved there? I think when I first moved here as an uh, exchange student, of course, I was in that kind of bubble of being a student, uh, which I feel is very different than moving here for, for other reasons. But because I've always wanted to visit China, so I was a little bit afraid that maybe I had too high of expectations so I was like, okay, I've always wanted to come. This is like a big dream of mine. Like, what if I go there and I just hate it? So I was really like prepared, like, okay, I'm just going to go for six months. I'm going to see how it's like. So I had my apartment waiting. I had my study place waiting. I had my job waiting in Finland. You know, in case after six months, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna just going to go back home. So I was a little bit worried about that in the beginning. Yeah, and I think it's a very valid worry. <laughs> like high expectations, like quite worried about being disappointed. Um, so that's that's really incredible. So you got to China, you obviously liked it. Can you describe like what is what is it that made you want to stay? Like why did you want to stay in China then? I think it's it's sometimes a little bit difficult to put into words, but it just felt it felt like the right place to be, and. I had already started to learn some Chinese before in Finland, uh, but it was very little, just, you know, hour here and there, maximum of two hours per week and not having the language environment. So being able to come here as a student and really immerse in the language and be able to, to study the language uh, full time was really something, an experience that would not have been possible even in Finland. Yeah, I completely get that. Did you say that you did your bachelor's in Finland before you went or did you only do a bachelor's in China? So I started in Finland. I was a history <laughs> major back in Finland uh, and I studied for about a year and a half before I ten started my study exchange and then never went back to Finland to finish it. <laughs> Okay, that makes sense. I was confused because I know that I've read on your blog that you did your undergraduate, you did your bachelor's in China. So I was like, oh, did she do two? Oh my God. Um, that makes sense. So was it, what was the process like? Could you, I'm guessing you could kind of transfer to China or did you completely start afresh on your bachelor's in China? So first I was an exchange student just studying the language at the Guangzhou University for three semesters. Um, then I was decided that I want to stay and I want to do my bachelor degree here. So I was looking at different options and applied to the Sun Yat-sen University. And at the time, they had this undergraduate program in Chinese language specifically made for foreigners learning the language. And because not because of anything I studied in Finland that wasn't too helpful, but that I have studied the language and I had a Hazeskate certificate, I could skip a year and a half out of the four hour, uh, four, uh, sorry, so I could skip year and a half out of the four year program. So I started directly on the second semester of the second year. 
Oh, wow. Okay, so you literally like leapfrogged into that course. Yeah, so luckily I didn't have to start all the way back from zero again, but I was able to just do exams and then leap forward a little bit. So did you still have the same major in your degree in China or was it different? Different because back in Finland, so I had a history major and then I was just a language student. And then the bachelor degree then was a like Chinese language degree, but just a special degree for foreigners. So we didn't have any local study uh, with us during uh-huh. that bachelor. Yeah. Okay. That's really interesting for anybody that doesn't, isn't familiar with the university that Sarah just described. She said she like transferred into Sun Yat-sen University and Sarah might not say this. I definitely will. Sun Yat-sen is a really prestigious university. Um, so it's really incredible that she could study there and they're, they're renowned for their courses and their studies and it has a lot of history. So I think it's really cool that you could study there. Um, So considering that you spent time studying in university in both Finland and China, what are some like major differences that you could see, whether it's like student life or the actual course load and homework or things like that? What are some differences that you were like shocked by? For me, of course, like my experience of studying more like humanistic uh, fields and such is a little bit different. But I would say studying that kind of history, for example, I studied in Finland, You, as a university student, you have a lot of freedom on creating your own titles, choosing which courses to take and when, or either if you want to attend to, to lectures more, if you prefer self-study more, there's a lot of freedom going on. Uh, in good and bad, like you can choose how your studies look like, But also, if in Finland, if you don't show up, no one is going to call after you and like, hey, Sarah, where have you been? I didn't see you in class. Whereas Mm -hmm. in China, doing the bachelor degree, it felt a bit more like like studying felt during high school. So a lot more school-like that you have. Okay, here's your timetable for this semester. There are a few optional courses you can choose from, but a lot of the courses we all took and there's class attendance and such. Of course, I understand it's you're studying the language, so it's very important to be there in person. But mm-hmm. it was a lot more school-like. And if I wouldn't have shown up for a week, I bet people would have started calling, like, where are you? You're supposed to be here. <laughs> yeah, 100%. We had something similar in university in Ireland, even though we're studying in Ireland in that particular Chinese class you had to have like a 90% attendance and if your attendance dropped below that you automatically fail the whole class yeah it was the same thing for us Mm, one other thing that I found is the the grades so in Ireland our pass rate in university is 40% but for any China Chinese course that I have ever done the pass grade has always been 60% which is a huge shock to me because I'm not like a natural learner and I found it sometimes really difficult to just scrape by above the pass grade did you have anything else like that that you were like whoa that's that's different I wasn't expecting that I would say like the grading system is different. In Finnish universities, our grading system is from one to five, one being the lowest and a five being the highest grade that you mm-hmm. can get from a university class. And there isn't such like in Finland, how many percent you have to get correct to get one. I I don't even have any idea because we didn't have such like multiple choice exams. So it's yeah. not as clear, whereas in China, it's very standard. 60% is to pass on any, you know, any exams or in any school. Yeah. Did you find it kind of difficult then, considering that in Finland, it was a lot more laid back and relaxed, whereas in China, it was a lot more regimented and you're almost treated more like a kid and there's these specific expectations. Did you thrive on that or did you find it kind of claustrophobic? I did. I think it uh, did take some time to get used to like going back to like school, like study. But I wouldn't mind. I always like going to lectures anyway, so I wouldn't didn't mind being in class. And I feel studying a language is a little bit different as well. That you do have to be there. And Chinese language is the one language that I have chosen myself to study that it was not compulsory in school. So I was highly motivated to study that as well. 
So I didn't mind having, you know, you have to have 60% of the pass or you have to be in lectures. I, I didn't mind that at all. Okay, that's that's really cool. So your languages, you speak Finnish as a native, you also speak English as a native pretty much, and then you speak Mandarin as well. Is that everything or do you have more up your sleeve? Uh, I have some failed attempts uh, in in my sleep. <laughs> I, I, I guess I, I guess I would say uh, in primary schools, I did a few years of German, mostly because my classmates went there too. I just followed them. Uh, unfortunately, mm-hmm. I have forgotten absolutely everything. In Finland, we also have a second official language, which is Swedish, that all of mm-hmm. us have to study. Now, unfortunately, being in China for such a long time, I have forgotten most of my Swedish as well. So basically, I can just only remember some words and phrases and such. But I've recently mm-hmm. gotten some motivation to maybe crush up on my Swedish uh, uh, as well. So we'll see. That's incredible. But still, even at that, that's a lot of languages, I think. Would you describe yourself as a natural language learner or do you feel you have to work quite hard at learning? I definitely no natural talent at all, I would say. If I'm thinking back in high school, like what kind of grades I got from English and Swedish classes, it was a rather embarrassing at times. And <laughs> I don't even know why. I, I'm not quite sure why uh, I didn't really get the, such good grades on them. So I think Chinese has been just so different because I chose to study it. Even though I don't have don't have anything against like you know learning English or Swedish, you know I definitely understand that. Especially English is such an important language, but I never had same kind of passion towards it. I thought, okay, we all go to school, we all learn English. That's just what we do. You didn't even have mm-hmm. to think about it. Whereas then Chinese was more like an active choice. Okay, I want to learn this language. I want to be good at it. So definitely, yeah. it was just an amount of sitting down, putting the work hour after hour not too much of a talent here <laughs> I think there's a lot to be said for that though people forget if you see people studying a language or you see something on Instagram and they're like I learned Mandarin in two years or whatever that kind of thing is you forget all the hours of hard work behind that and that's hours sitting at a computer that's hours practicing your handwriting that's hours feeling like an idiot when you speak and you know you're not saying the right thing but it's the only way to practice and improve um for people that know don't know there is a exam in China called HSK it is the Han Yu Shui Ping Kaoshi it's the Chinese proficiency exam and Sarah you know a lot more about this than me I know that I have tested in the in the past but there's an old version and a new version which version do you currently um, adhere to? So actually, so the original Hazescape version, we could say Hazescape 1.0, was in place when I first came to China. And uh, it had three different exams, elementary, intermediate, and advanced. But then the current Hazescape started around, it must have been 2000. 11, 2012, around that time, what we consider mm-hmm. now as the current HSK with levels from one to six and each of the level having their own exam. And then now there are plans for the new HSK, which hasn't fully happened yet. So we still have the current one to six exams, but on top they have just added this new advanced exam that one exam covers the level seven to nine. So I have the great pleasure to have taken the old one, the current one, and the new one. That's incredible. Oh, my God. And what's your kind of feeling or your opinion on them? How do they compare to each other? The old one was very, very challenging I because I took the intermediate exam uh, around 2011. And this exam had different levels all together uh, from levels, I think, Hazeskei, uh, four at the time, which is not the same as HSK four now, but level four all the way to level seven. So when I was taking level four exam, the exam also included all the material for five to seven. So there was like 80% of material you weren't even supposed to understand. And you just have to go through it somehow. 
and based on the score you get your grade so it was very uh, very stressful uh, stressful indeed i even failed my my first hsk exam did you oh I my did. gosh <laughs> i did so i took the old original hsk two times so once failed and at the time i got hsk level five and after mm-hmm. that, then I uh, changed it to the current HSK, which is levels one to six, which is uh, a lot easier because if you're going for level four, you take the level four exam and this only has level four questions in it. So it's not quite yeah. that intimidating as it is. But of course, it's been 10 years already since some of the vocabulary certainly has to be updated. So we will see that the, the new HSK, once they decide to update the levels one to six, it is going to be harder than it is now, which is a little okay. bit of a pity. I hope they would have included like a very low threshold, like HSK one and two. So you kind of, you get mm. easier steps to get kind of get on it, but we don't really yet know how that's going to look like. It's only the advanced exam seven to nine that just started last year. So have you taken one of those from seven to nine? So I took it last year and it was funny to prepare for an exam that didn't have any materials to prepare for, <laughs> except just the vocabulary <laughs> list. But there's, there's no textbooks or no yeah. mock exams and such, you know, uh, uh, available. The only mock exam we got was one or two weeks before the exam, we got to try it out to see how the exam is actually going to be like. So you got like a two oh weeks gosh. advance. Okay, this is what we expect uh, expect from you. <laughs> that's hilarious. That just sounds very Chinese to me. I, I completely understand if it's something that's never been done before. Obviously, there's no, you know, mock tests, but it's very Chinese to just say the week before like, oh, here, just this is similar. Try this one. Here's Here's an idea of what it will be like. Yeah, I think like probably like last year, they had tried it out once, I think in Thailand and maybe other places. And then last year mm-hmm. was the first one everyone could sign up. So we were, I think we were kind of the guinea pigs uh, of the exam. <laughs> and uh, well, I was lucky enough to, to do, even though it's extremely challenging, uh, I was lucky enough to get to HSK level eight certificate out of it. So I'm happy mm-hmm. I went through it, even though it was uh, rather stressful. <laughs> Well, congratulations. I think, yeah, level eight is definitely not easy. I think in the past, I've only got to level five and that was a struggle a few years ago. But yeah, level eight, I've heard that um, after six or even six in itself is quite difficult. So I'm sure seven, eight, nine are extremely difficult. So well done you. Um, So if we're talking learning language, learning Mandarin, obviously you had like a really regimented path to learn it you know you said you tried you did the first just language study in China and then you went into a course that was Chinese studies um do you have advice for someone that is just beginning a journey of learning Mandarin what would you say to them yeah I would certainly say not to not to compare with my journey because I've been studying Chinese full-time for such a long time as an exchange student then uh, three and a half years of undergrad and then two years teaching degree in Chinese. So I'm definitely not the one to follow on that path if you don't want to do as intensive. But let them kind of see like uh, like the reasons and like, why do you want to learn Chinese? If you're one of those that thinks it's an interesting, fascinating language, and you want to learn it for fun, that's kind of the best situation even to be in because you can just kind of pick and choose what interests you. Oh, this is an interesting book. I'm going to look at this. Oh, that's a great app. I'm going to do that. And you don't have to, you know, stress about it. Just enjoy the process and enjoy the the journey that goes along with that. And of course, then it's a very different thing if you're studying that for some reason you need to take the HSK. For example, you want to apply to a Chinese university or your job requires that for you're thinking for your career prospect, you're going to need a HSK certificate. Then, of course, besides learning daily life uh, Chinese that you're going to need in your life and actually use it, then there's a second part is HSK is an exam. So before an exam, you have an exam prep, which doesn't necessarily is the same as using the language in real life. But if you need it, then you just have to go through it. 
Very true. I think a lot of people forget that people, if they start learning Mandarin, it's either one or the other. They either see this HSK and they latch on to it and they say, okay, I'm going to do one, two, three, four, or one, skip to three, skip to whatever. And they see that as like a stepping stone because it's easy to plan your learning journey. Or it's the other extreme, which is people that don't see as much value in the HSK test and they focus on okay, I'm going to use this app and this is how I'm going to learn this. I'm going to watch this TV show or I'm going to, you know, I know that this is what you would say in normal daily interactions. Like this is what you say if you go to the bank. This is what you need if you go to the shop. Um, Yeah, what would you advise someone if they're not sure they don't need Mandarin for a specific reason, but they just want to study? Which kind of avenue should they go down? I would say like if you're like... You don't necessarily need the HSK, but you're also not like, oh, I'm just going to learn a little bit for fun. You're like somewhere in the between, like, you know, it's an important language for you. You kind of want to kind of take it seriously. I would still, I'm still a very much um, a fan of having some sort of structure in your studies. I feel mm-hmm. what I often see with some of my students is that uh, if you're learning language for fun, you can pick and choose and that's completely fine. You just have fun with it. But if you have certain goals, it might be very difficult to get structure in your studies and kind of advancing, you know, making sure, you know, you're getting a good foundation first and you're getting the basics down first before going forward. So I'm very much a fan of having the basic structure. It could be a course, it could be your tutor, it could be like a a textbook series that you use. And then you complement with with all the fun YouTube videos, the apps, the podcasts, and everything, you know, it's kind of coming around it to making it more fun. But the structure kind of in the middle will then help you uh, to progressively advance in your language skills, like you have listening, speaking, reading, and writing, and typing, and having that kind of focus, and then all the fun around it. Absolutely. Thank you for that advice, because I think... um, Yeah, I think it's really difficult for some people to know where to start or how to, they start, they jump in, but they can't figure out how to progress well. So I think, yeah, especially coming from you, that's a really good advice. So for people that are listening, you would have heard. So Sarah is also a teacher. She is professionally qualified as a teacher of Mandarin for, uh, as a second language to students. So basically any students that are in China that they are foreigners or Mandarin is not their first language she teaches them Mandarin which is incredible so if we transition here into talking about your career did you always know that you wanted to be a teacher no, no, not at all. Back in Finland, when I was studying a history, because for history majors, it's quite common to then become teachers at middle school or high school. Uh, I never considered that, actually. Uh, I was thinking of working in museums, for example, with my history degrees. I never considered to be a teacher. And when I moved to China, I just wanted to study the language. And during my undergrad on the third year, uh, we had to make a decision to choose kind of a, a speciality that we wanted to focus on. I had originally thought about going for the culture speciality, but on that year they decided to cancel it. So there was not an option anymore. And I was left with two other options. One was business Chinese that I was not so interested in. And then the third one was then education and teaching. So that's kind of like, okay, okay, this is better than business. So I'm going to go there. So during those few courses at the end of my undergrad, when we learned about teaching Chinese, it was only then when I started to realize like, wait a minute, maybe there's something in here. Maybe this could be something I could do. Mm, That's yeah. It sounds like fate to me. (laughs) Wow. Um, So going from, you know, doing that and then you did your actual master's degree in um being a teacher of mandarin to as a second language students how did you end up opening your own business like walk us through like how did you go from after you graduated your master's what happened then so actually my 
the very first month that I started my master's degree, so this was September 2014, I happened to see this post on Facebook about a foreigner in Guangzhou looking for a Chinese teacher. And I had no experience at that time, but I was thinking like, wait a minute, like I'm going to go into the learning about this. Maybe, you know, there's going to be a chance for me here. So I started yeah. actually teaching part-time the same time as I was doing my degree. And oh boy, I was so nervous at the time. I remember for my <laughs> first lesson of teaching. So I had one hour of class, you know, it was coming. I prepared like eight hours to be ready for that one hour of class. Oh, that's so sweet. Oh my God. It just shows how much you care though. How did it go? Well, I think it went well because she uh, stayed as my student for uh, for years before the, she then moved back to Sweden afterwards. <laughs> that's incredible. Okay. So you started picking up even students part-time so that you could actually practice your literal teaching skills while you were still doing your master's at the same time and how did that how did that end up being a fully fledged business so at the time that i graduated uh, in 2016 uh, i was teaching students at their homes sometimes at coffee shops and i was just going around the city all the time and i was thinking like i'm spending so much time just going from one place to another like that it doesn't make sense anymore that I'm not spending my time teaching I'm spending my time in the metro or in the taxi or just walking from place to place so and uh, so that's why I decided okay like I should you know open up my own classroom to set it up as a, as a proper business now that I have graduated so then finally officially set up in uh, January 2017. Yeah, congratulations. I remember watching it all unfold. So on WeChat, WeChat is not only a payment platform and things like that, it also has a social aspect, um, this Chinese app, and you can share moments. And it's kind of like your Facebook newsfeed, you can share pictures and things like that. And I have been um, acquaintances with Sarah for a few years and I seen as it all unfolded unfolded on her WeChat moment moments that she was launching this new business and that you you know you went and you got an office and then eventually it was you hired your own staff and I was like oh my god she's doing it like a, a foreigner in China and I think it's really common to see foreigners in China start businesses when it comes to a restaurant or a coffee shop or things like that you know F&B industry or different industries but I've never seen you know, like a language center, a teacher, something like that. How was it for you to the logistics of setting up your own business in China when it comes to finding an office, when it comes to dealing with the government, when you need permits and stuff like that? How did you find that whole process? Well, I, I had two uh, two people that are very important in helping with this. Uh, one is as I'm uh, married to a local Chinese uh, very valuable in this regard as well. <laughs> and uh, he happened to also be very knowledgeable on things like setting up companies and this kind of things and like official stuff, which mm. I'm like, I'm a teacher or I studied, you know, languages and history. The business side is not my strong part at all. So yeah. luckily to have a partner who is more business minded and numbers and excels kind of guy. But then just have finding the great uh, agent to go through all the paperwork as well. Even though you could do it yourself, but there's so many steps to do and a lot of things you could easily forget to do. So mm -hmm. I was really happy to have someone, you know, just tell us his point. Okay, what do we have to do? What do we have to submit? And then you know, I just like follow her lead on what to do. Like <laughs> I personally, I don't like paperwork that much. I would not do it on my own. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I've never seen a country to have as many agents, an agent for this, an agent for that, a person that specializes in this. And it sounds like it's it's an industry in itself. But when you look at something like opening your own business, it's necessary because each local area has their own local government and they have their own rules when it comes to specific things. So for you registering your business in Guangzhou would be very different than somebody registering a business in Shanghai. So when it comes to these people that are agents, they are very familiar with the local processes and the local 
people who they need to submit what to. Um, so it sounds like it's not a scam, but it sounds like, you know, it's, oh, why would I pay extra for an agent to do blah, blah, blah. How would you rate like how valuable that was to you? Like from one to 10, would you, if you were doing the whole thing again, would you still get an agent? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Like there's so many little things to to take care of, and I I think you know you know as a business owner you know time is money, and do you want to use the time to figure out things on your own? Like I, I certainly wouldn't wouldn't be able able to do that. Of course, you know mm-hmm. as a foreigner starting up a business here, you see the difference of agents and, and what kind of services they they offer and also the pricing that they ask for can be also great depending if they are only Chinese speaking agents or if they also offer the service in English language. So there can be also a huge difference there on how much you're paying for the agent for this work. So luckily we could just use a local Chinese speaking agent that catered to mostly to Chinese customers. So mm-hmm. it was also rather uh, Uh, rather manageable and uh, not that expensive either that's a really great point to make I don't think I'd actually consider that obviously there's local agents for Chinese people that speak Mandarin and or Cantonese and then there's also agents that specialize in helping foreigners that only speak English or don't have a good enough level of Chinese to actually do it in that way that's a really great point Um, so you set up your language training center in 2017 which also means that you existed through COVID. How was that having a business and kind of just trying to survive during everything that happened in China with COVID? Yes, that that was definitely definitely hard because even though I did and I do certain amount of online teaching as well, but our core students are the students that come to the classroom. Uh, in person, face to face. And when COVID started, uh, me and my husband were both uh, business owners, me doing the Chinese training. And he also had a business that relied people going uh, to the business in person. So during the COVID, yes, we definitely realized of the risk if in a marriage, both of you are business owners and both require people come to face to face to you. So later on, we decided like maybe this is not the best uh, position for us. So later we decided Mm -hmm. that uh, I will continue as a business owner with the ups and downs and the risk uh, involved. But then we want someone else to have actually a stable salary income. So that's then where my husband's job is at the moment. Uh, So these are big learnings that we learned from the COVID times. But the first few months, it was uh, extremely, extremely quiet. And basically income dropped to zero or minus because you still had to pay rent, obviously, even you didn't have too many students at the time. So that first spring of uh, 2020 was uh, was definitely difficult in that regard. One good thing that came out uh, out of COVID time is that a lot of the other uh, teaching Chinese centers uh, quit during the COVID times (laughs) because this type of business of teaching Chinese to foreigners it's definitely not for you if you're like after the big bucks, like if you want to earn some serious money, yeah, do not get into this business. This business is not not really for that. So a lot of people decide, okay, maybe it's not worth it uh, and just started doing something else. So there was definitely, I can see a difference now that we have waited it out, COVID finally yeah. over that we can see, okay, there aren't as many centers just operating here anymore. Yeah, I feel like at one stage in China, there was, when I was still there, there was definitely, it felt like a money grab. So there was a lot of companies and you knew that they were only speak or teaching Chinese to foreigners because they seen that foreigners were willing to pay. And I know it's not always the highest amount. It's not as much as some Chinese people are willing to pay for English teaching, but at the same time, it's still above um, some of the normal wages, depending on what industry you're in. So at one point, I remember there being kind of a saturation of, you know, oh, there's a Chinese teacher, we'll teach you Mandarin, we'll teach you Cantonese, we'll teach you X, Y, and Z. 
you couldn't be 100% sure that they're fully qualified. <laughs> they would like, you know, advertise with certain credentials and you'd end up with a different teacher. Um, so it's really interesting that you literally as a teacher and a business owner experienced survival of the fittest, literally how you were able to kind of, you know, double down, bring things online, your students, some, some of your students, a lot of them stayed with you because they seen the value in it. And they had probably a lot more free time with being literally having to stay at home. Um, so that's really interesting that, you know, since as well, you've seen there's still that many centers, a lot of them just kind of bowed out during COVID and now there's a lot less. Um, when it comes to COVID, you were in China when everything happened and you experienced living through that as a foreigner in China. Did you find it quite difficult? I think COVID was, that's a stupid question. COVID was difficult for everybody, especially um, the first half of 2020 and beyond that, obviously. What was your experience of a foreigner living in China during COVID? Uh, definitely, we had hard uh, hard things as well. Of course, like as our like uh, family income uh, significantly uh, dropping or non-existent for uh, for a month or two, and just all of that un- un- uncertainty and uh, not being able to go back to Finland for four years. But still, in a sense, I would still consider us uh, a little bit lucky. Because our area where we live in Guangzhou, we didn't have any uh, any harsh uh, quarantine. For example, we were ne- never confined just to our home. We could always uh, go outside in the neighboring areas. So a lot of the worst things that we then experienced in Guangzhou in some of the districts, like the Haizhou district being completely closed off. Uh, we were lucky that in our area, uh, we didn't have that. So we still got a little bit easier than many of the other areas in Guangzhou. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think a lot of people don't realize. I think there was a lot of stuff on social media, but a lot of people were literally confined for long periods of times because it was necessary if there was an outbreak or it was just local government rules or that kind of thing. So I think people's experience even within China, within different areas of one city or within different cities is vastly different. So it's nice to hear from one person about about your experience, because I think there's a lot of crap on social media and you don't know what to believe. And, you know, it's it's hard to know without hearing it firsthand. But that's that's really good to hear. Um, So you have had your business for almost seven years now. We are language center. Uh, If you were to start all over again, is there anything that you do different? Uh, that's a great question. What I what I would do uh, differently? There's not too many things because I think we've learned uh, learned a lot through the years uh, of operating and uh, improved ourselves. I've improved as a as a as a teacher and so on. Maybe back in you know maybe those COVID years could have used like the downtime could have used even a little bit better on, for example, building more on like online teaching side or such, these kind of things. Mm-hmm. But of course, you know, COVID years, you had a lot more time at your hands, but it was also such a stressful time at, uh, at times as well. So it's hard to say if would have done that uh, or not. In general, I'm quite happy where we are, even though it's not quite the same as before COVID, as the amount of foreigners in Guangzhou is still a little bit different. But this year that uh, all the restrictions are finally over, uh, it is very nice to see new people coming to the city as well. So it feels a sense of normalcy. If we jump into you and living in China, you've mentioned in our conversation that your husband is a local. So um, obviously you are Finnish, but you've lived in China for such a long time. Um, You met a Chinese guy and he's also local. He's a Cantonese guy, right? Yeah, from Guangzhou. That's right. Awesome. So you guys got married a few years ago and you have a daughter. how has it been kind of bridging the two cultures, even though you said when you were younger, you had a lot of 
influence, small influences since your mom and dad did spend time in China for a few years. Uh, even when you were growing up, you had small influences of Chinese culture. How has that been for you then merging the two cultures and traditions and everything like that when it comes to raising a family? It certainly is a very different thing to to know, to experience a little bit of the culture or read about the culture or read about Chinese families than actually being part of, of said family. Uh, I remember before I came to China, I always admired how how close the Chinese families are and all the family members are just very like a close-knit team. And now uh, part of being, uh, being part of a Chinese family now almost 10 years in February going to be 10 years uh, anniversary for, for me and my husband you can definitely see that Chinese families indeed are extremely close but you could say they're close in good and in bad so you cannot just <laughs> pick one you're gonna get both of them so they will always help you if you have something they will drop everything and come and help you but they will also come in the middle at, at your things or you come home, you realize, okay, why is, you know, my table moved from that corner to that corner? So you cannot really always pick and choose. So you get all of it. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. That's That's family, right? <laughs> and I feel like it's definitely Chinese family is kind of. I'll show you that I love you by doing X, Y, and Z. Whether you like it or not, it's it's for your own good. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Um, you've described on your blog that you have a, you and your husband have kind of an older and more traditional style Chinese house. Uh, you've, you've actually detailed like about renovating it and, you know, kind of um, renovating certain rooms in the house and you've explained the style of the house and actually explained like, in detail and contextualize it with what it's like and why certain rooms are designed that way with Chinese tradition or history. Um, can you, if you were to describe your old traditional style Chinese house, how would you describe it to somebody that couldn't see it? So we have a, a two-story brick house that uh, originally was a rather old house, but a bigger one in the exact same uh, same spot. But then through the times, the bigger house was not needed anymore. So they used some of the, uh, the ground stones and the groundings foundations for this new house that it was a little bit smaller, which continued the old style from, you know, 100, 200 years back, even though the smaller house was actually built around 1978 or 1979. So it's not quite that old, but it was just built in the same fashion as they had for a uh, hundred years. Uh, so because in Guangzhou, most of the years it's extremely hot. So we have, for example, very small windows, which makes that the hot sun doesn't come in, but also we have less sunlight as well. Oh. So all of these kind of things, they have their reasons back in the day. But of course, now mm -hmm. one might perhaps find a little bit inconvenient not to have as much sunlight for example and such and living in an old house of course you always have you know uh, there's a lot of things that look pretty if you like that kind of aesthetics of an old Chinese uh, Chinese house with a little backyard and a little atrium and a balcony and such but then also comes it like keeping it up to date like during the latest typhoon we realize the roof is leaking and there's a huge crack on the roof so all of these kind of things happen because at the time it was built maybe it wasn't built quite that sturdy after all mm -hmm. so you kind of start noticing all these little problems around the house I feel like a lot of people whether you live in the UK Ireland Finland China and you're listening to this I feel like a lot of people can relate when it comes to a house, whether it's newly built or whether it's old, you're going to come across a problem that you never even could have dreamed to happen. And you're like, what the hell? Or <laughs> exactly. Like, oh, my God, I knew something would happen. Um, yeah, uh, that's that's uh, it's not funny, but it's <laughs> it's amusing. It's like. <laughs> so how has it been like renovating certain parts of the house and trying to fix stuff when it comes to kind of um, Chinese construction and things like that? How have you found that process? So we have done quite a minimal, uh, minimal renovations. So 
uh, that house belongs to the family and my husband used to live in this house when he was a kid and then oh, so nice. later on he was maybe seven eight years old then they moved to the new house next door mm-hmm. and for 20 years or so it was rented to other people so once we decided to move in in 2014 when we got married it had been rented out for such a long time and unfortunately those people didn't necessarily take such a good care of it so just Mm -hmm. cleaning the house was a huge huge process and at the beginning we only did the minimal like painted the walls again and did the bathroom because bathroom i think is most important room in the house like you want to have a nice bathroom uh so we did that and all the other things we just done little by little we only managed to do a proper kitchen renovation one year ago <laughs> so it always felt like yeah we don't know how long we're gonna stay here but then finally we realized oh dear it's it's been nine years okay let's do the kitchen now <laughs> Yeah, I I deserve, I have my nice bathroom and I need that, but I'd really love a decent kitchen too. (laughs) Yeah, once we got it done, we're like, why didn't we do this sooner? (laughs) So you mentioned that then your your in-laws live next door. Are they still living next door in the new house? Uh, My father-in-law does, but my mother-in-law is usually living a few kilometers away at my sister-in-law's place because she's helping with the kids. So she's usually back during the weekends. Ah, okay. So they are quite close. So how is it having your in-laws and your your husband's family being quite close to you? Uh, in the beginning, there was definitely a lot of adjustment and, um, and they were kind of worried for some reason that us two adults couldn't be able to live on our own <laughs> Which to me felt very silly because I moved away from my home when I was 15 years old. So I wasn't yeah. quite sure what they were so worried about. But that's the Chinese way of caring. So it took a long time to kind of balance that, okay, this is our space. And even we appreciate what we do, what you do, but we want to have our own ways and our privacy and such. And mm-hmm. I think that we are finally now in a place that uh they're secretly sometimes even a little bit happy that we don't require their help quite as much and just you know go about our our own lives but i think it's very important if anyone is married to a chinese spouse that it's your chinese spouse unfortunately but in the middle they are the ones that are in charge of the, you know keeping a peace in the relationship because they they are really the key if they are in the middle and they can work with you know both of their parents and with you mm-hmm. uh, then it's a uh, you're gonna have a more harmonious life with your in-laws if you have you know the strong spouse in the middle kind of talking to both sides yeah, I, I, that is a hundred percent true. And I know from friends that also have, they are foreigners and they have Chinese spouses or husbands. Um, you definitely need a strong person, and it has to be a strong person in the middle because if it's somebody who's a bit more, uh, shy or meek or not willing to say what they think or need, then that's where you get kind of a miscommunication, and that's where you can have encounters with in-laws or the in-law family that. Um, you guys just yeah you're just not on the same page so I think that's amazing advice and for anybody out there that maybe has a Chinese spouse or that has a foreign spouse Sarah has some really amazing advice and even just personal stories on her blog of dealing with that and certain things that you might encounter or what it's like meeting your Chinese in-laws for your first Chinese new year or holiday or stuff like that so if you're interested in any of that kind of thing check her blog out because it has some amazing articles um Sarah I won't keep you too much longer but I do want to just mention the fact that you have started a PhD which I am astounded by. I think you've, you know, you've spent so many years studying Mandarin and you can even teach it now. You then went and opened up your own language learning center, your own business, which has kept you super busy. In the meantime, you've got married and had a, a child. You have a daughter that you also raise. And now you've decided, okay, I'm bored again. I'm just going to go do a PhD. Oh my God, congratulations. How, how has that been for you so far? 
Thank you. And uh, that really maybe comes thanks to COVID because I think COVID times, you know, things slow down. So you have time to, you know, to consider your life and where you're at. And at the time already, I, I had been teaching Chinese for quite a few years. And even though I enjoy it a lot, but I also noticed that I was maybe getting into a rut a little bit. Like I felt a little bit stuck. Like I'm teaching, you know, the same things over and over again. I just felt like, you know, am I really going anywhere? Like, where is this going? And I just happened to by chance to see this uh, job ad for a position at the Finnish university. And I wasn't nearly qualified for that uh, position, but that's kind of like what got me thinking, like, wait a minute, like, could there be a way that in the future I could be qualified for something, for something like that? So I started looking at some, uh, some different options and uh, the application period took around, uh, around a year or so uh, because they have applications twice a year. So it took around a year. I was working with my two amazing supervisors that I found uh, just writing my research plan and my research proposal and working on that. And then finally got the good news about a year ago and officially started in January now, 2023. That's incredible. So what is your research topic or your kind of area of expertise then? So I'm at the University of Turku in Finland at the education department. So what I'm interested in is what motivates us to learn Chinese and especially how to maintain that motivation. Uh, we all know, you know, there are certain students or learners, people who just keep on good doing, you know, they're learning the language or doing different things. And no matter what happens, you know, COVID happens or things happen, that they just keep on going and they just always seem to have this, you know, endless motivation. I think like, why is that? Why are people so highly motivated? And then others are more easily you know, start learning Chinese, then give up. Like, what is the secret behind that? That was really like what I want to find out. Incredible. So, how how long? I'm sorry, I'm I'm very ignorant when it comes to PhDs. What's the process like? How long is a PhD? So, as I'm doing what is called a article based thesis, so it means I will not write like one big book at the end. Instead, I have to publish three art scientific articles and then put them together and then I'm uh, qualified to apply to graduate. Now, how long that takes in Finland, the standard, if you do it full time, is four years. But there is no strict deadline. Once you're in the BHC program, you basically cannot be kicked out of it, so to speak. <laughs> So there is no strict deadline. You must finish by that. Some people, you know, take 10 years to finish their PhD. Mm, that's incredible. I think even starting it is a major accomplishment. So congratulations to you. Thank you. And one thing that I've really enjoyed about doing a PhD, it's just the new, like the community of people who are interested in the same things as you are. If you're thinking of, you know, mm. you go into a coffee with good friends who have the same hobbies as you and then be able to study things with this like-minded group and you always have something to talk about that everyone is, oh, that's so cool. That's so interesting. So I think the people and the connections I found through that has been one of the best things. Absolutely. It's like finding your circle of people. Yes, Amazing. definitely. Uh, if you're wondering more about PhDs, Sarah has also detailed this on her blog. So I'll leave the link in the show notes if you want to check it out. Um, Sarah, one last thing I want to chat to you about. You are a business owner, a mother, um, a wife. You are a student again, and then you're also your own person. For anybody out there who is in a similar position and you're juggling so many things, what advice would you give to them? I think one big thing that I've tried to learn myself as well is to, even it seems like I'm doing many things, but one big thing I've been learning this last year or two is to also learn how to say no. 
because there are always so many interesting things that you can do like you're like okay there's this interesting project do you want to join there's this interesting event do you want to go there's this and that uh, but sometimes I feel you have to be mindful also on how much you can take and take care of your mental health as well and not to be too overwhelmed. So for me, I've also done different things in the past, but now I feel like like I still have my focus. So uh, whatever kind of improves uh, the field of teaching Chinese to foreigners, so it's through my own teaching or the business or my PhD, they are all kind of going towards the same goal. So if there's any new opportunities coming along and if it doesn't match that goal, I'm just like, that's amazing. That sounds great. But I'm just going to politely say no. Like that's not my focus because if you have too many things going on and too scattered, I personally feel it just really takes a toll on you and creates unnecessary stress. I think that's incredible advice. And I think that's the perfect way to end the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me, Sarah. It was a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much. It's been an honor to be part of the podcast. Exciting. I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Sarah Yaksola. If you've listened to a couple of episodes now, I'd really appreciate it if you could give a five-star review wherever you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. If you have any thoughts or stories relating to this week's podcast, send it in to us via email, chinachatspod at gmail.com or DM us on Instagram, the China Chats Podcast. Thank you so much for listening and all your support. Talk to you next week.